you're a fascist Nazi. You're a lib. You're literally Hitler. Go back to your safe space, you special snowflakes. Enough snowflakes can cause an avalanche. Oh, well, you're a. So we're here with the Hear Yourself Think Project. We're going to talk to folks about how media influences their attitudes and actions. And uh, as you see on this video, it does so to an extreme degree. So this is the message that this media sends is normal. It's obviously toxic, and that's what we're here today to expose. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. Good. Um, we're doing kind of a video log today, like a lot of the reporters talking with folks. Are we okay? We talk to you guys a little bit about your support. Yeah. So what brought you out today? Support Trump. Support Trump. Uh, why do you support Trump? About every reason there is. Number one. I'm gonna say the wall. Yeah, where yeah, do you stand? What's your position? I'm definitely coming not from your guys' position. Oh, we no, know yeah, that. We, that's <laughs> how we realize that. Right? Yeah. I don't know, but you, I asked you a question first. Why won't you answer when I ask you what your favorite accomplishment is by Hillary? Um, healthcare for kids. Healthcare for kids? Who is that? Why can't you answer a damn question, man? Like, no, no, so I, I'm not. I'm, so I'm on. I'm asking the question. Yeah, so you don't have a network. What do you do for a living? 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 How come you're not at work today? How come you're not at work today? How come you're not at work today? What does this guy do for a living? Who are you? What do you do for a living? Now he's quiet. Now he's quiet. Psychosexual. There we go. All right, man. Come on, talk big. Talk big. Talk big. Talk big. You started it. This is your idea. You can't answer anything. Anybody asked you. I am thinking about it. So what position did you play on the high school football team? This is your idea of tight end. Screaming and yelling and not getting to you can't answer two questions by Hillary. He can't answer whether he has a job. Conversations about media influence, and this guy's a perfect example of the kind of media that led to. Oh, you're so smart, man! You're so smart. Listen, he's whoa. You're an intellectual. He's not mainstream media. This is right wing news. This is right wing news. That's right, bro. Sir, sir, sir. The backlash okay. on right wing media to Obama is what brought you Trump. Yeah. Hey, Who here's sir. a birther? Are you a secular Jew? You, Honestly, sir, you seem like it. Are you a secular Jew? Do you accept oh, that President Obama was born? What religion are you? What religion are you? Do you accept that President Obama? Oh uh, yeah, I think he's Frank Marshall Davis' son. Oh great, that's 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 good. You have children. You have children. Now, you have a girlfriend. You have you ever had a girlfriend? Anybody, have you ever had a girlfriend? Why should anyone listen to you? Why should anyone listen to you? Why should anyone listen? What have you accomplished in your life that makes you worth listening to? Are you a winner or a loser? Because everyone, you look like a loser to me, man. Decibels are not news. Why are you ignoring Well, I thought you can't hear me because you can't answer my questions, bro. Are you a loser? I'm Jean Barsotti, and you're listening to the Uncomfortable Conversation Speaker Series Podcast, brought to you by the Carnegie Free Library of Beaver Falls. The Uncomfortable Conversation Podcast is a production of the Social Voice Project. It was Cicero that said, silence is one of the great arts of conversation. Well, today we're not going to be silent. We want to have a vibrant conversation about things, especially these uncomfortable topics so the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast is produced by the library, and it's all about bringing topical issues to the community. The library is a communal space, 
in community spaces, we have these conversations about a lot of things. Well, why not let's make this a little bit more productive and constructive and let's have these uncomfortable conversations and be civil about it. And that's why I asked you here today to sort of give us some guidance on how to have a civil conversation. My name is Kevin Fargus. I'm the guest host for the podcast today. And joining me today are two experts on how to have a civil conversation. Aaron and Dave Neinhauser are here today, and they have an organization called Hear Yourself Think. Kevin, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank the uh, library for uh, doing this, right? The Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. You know, th- this is really, this is, there's a lot of this going around right now. People trying to figure out how to have uh, civil conversations across the divide, right? So I think, you know, in terms of the Hear Yourself Think project that Aaron and I founded, the question that we had, that we asked ourselves, was why are our conversations so uncomfortable? It's not just the topic, right? I mean, is it fair to say that, yeah, abortion's difficult to talk about, and do use the cliche kind of topics, uh, guns, immigration, yeah, those can be uncomfortable in in themselves. But these these issues have always been contentious, right? We're always gonna fight about immigration, we're always gonna fight about different, you know, hot button topics, right? But something has really, and I think we're seeing in our culture, in our uh, in our poli- in our politics, that you know, you know, the elevation of Donald Trump, for instance, to uh, the presidency, uh, shows us that something is is very different. You know, there are, our conversations just aren't uncomfortable. The conversation has sort of gone off the rails. Uh, so so that's, the, for, the form. So am I sort of correct to say that it's sometimes it's the form of the conversation that really, like Marshall McLuhan said, you know, the, sometimes the form is the message. I mean, topic X, we could scream about topic X, or we could have a civil conversation about topic X. Right. I was just gonna say, I think, I think we become less interested as a culture in learning and more about uh, defending what our points of view might be. So um, I appreciated the quote that you opened with. (laughs) I think silence is really valuable. So a lot of what we, I mean, the reason why we called our uh, nonprofit, Hear Yourself Think, was to say right out front how important it is to just sort of hit pause, take a step back and reconsider your own ideas. You know, we're, we're way too much in the mode of just, you know, deciding in our gut how we feel about something and then cherry picking arguments and evidence to um, defend that at all costs and not listen, not be open to other points of view, not be open to even reevaluating our ideas and if they make sense. The inspiration for the Hear Yourself Think Project came from our work. Aaron and I have been, you know, for years, uh, you know this about us, doing grassroots uh, advocacy and organizing on you know what you would broadly describe as progressive issues, right? Uh, coming from the more progressive progressive side of issues like healthcare or environment or uh, you know uh, good government, etc. It's not so much about what's you know what we found in talking to thousands and thousands of citizens at their doors, knocking on their doors to talk to them, for instance, about healthcare. Is you know it's fine to disagree, you know, for instance, when we were talking about healthcare reform talking to people about let's you know we need to make a change in this country about how we're delivering health care it's you know millions of people are shut out it's too expensive and we, we need to do something about that people broadly agreed with that but then something happened in our media culture right as that issue would he- as an issue like healthcare would become more prominent that people's attitudes would harden and become very uh, toxic you know folks remember the town halls that were held in what, what like in 2000 and 2009, the Tea Party, for instance, would come out in force. It's like we said, we're always going to have contentious issues in this country like healthcare and immigration. And it's fine for people to disagree. Uh, What 
caused us to uh, launch the Hear Yourself Think project, what we realized was that it's not okay, right, for people to be filled with misinformation and conspiracy theories and sort of becoming unhinged. And, you, and if we think back to a lot of these town hall experiences, people came out in force, almost to the point of violence, you know, about things that weren't in the healthcare law, right? Death panels, right? And the President Obama is from another country and he's really this foreign other who wants to come in and, and use healthcare as a form of tyranny to kill your grandmother, right? So that, that, that was a, a phenomenon that we saw intensifying in our culture. And like Aaron said, people were having these like gut reactions and becoming convinced of things that were simply not true. So the, the question for us, is yes, how do we have civil conversations, but also how do we kind of kick those conversations out of what we, you know, what is called the lizard brain, right? That sort of fear and, and rage center and back up into, a, into our higher minds, not just so we can be nice and have civil conversations where we're not fighting, but where we can get folks who've sort of been sucked in, because this is a real thing that's happening. And once again, our politics sort of demonstrates this in terms of Donald Trump and the spread of conspiracy theories and Alex Jones. How do we get people who are sucked in to this misinformation loop, into these conspiracy theories, into this sort of rage-based politics. How do we get folks to see through that or, or to take a step back, like Aaron said, and be able to kind of coolly consider information and coolly consider issues like healthcare and immigration so it's just not simply reactive and, and rage-based? Because so much of the media that people are consuming puts people there. That's where they want people, right, for political purposes. So the mission of Hear Yourself Think is and, and I'll quote this, is to reveal the tactics propagandists, propagandists use to short-circuit our higher thinking, as you say. So propaganda, that seems to me that this is where we begin, mm -hmm. re recognizing what's the propaganda in this. Oh, what is your definition of propaganda? So um, the definition for propaganda that we use, um, you know, and we didn't really talk a lot about what we do is hear yourself think, but we've, um, you know, we do trainings and presentations, we host uh, community meetings, but uh, one of our board members, I think, pretty aptly described our mission as consciousness raising about propaganda. So we we define propaganda as um, information that is not objective, that's used to influence people and further an agenda, often by presenting facts selectively to encourage a particular perception or by using loaded language to produce an emotional rather than a rational response to the information presented. We had the opportunity in the last couple of months to not only do our presentation with people in the progressive community who are looking for ways to bridge the divide and have more productive conversations, but also with undergraduate students. And so um, we talked about propaganda and it was really interesting to hear the perspective of young people. So when we give this definition, we would ask people to think about where they encounter information like that in their everyday lives. And um, some people would say political ads, some people would say on cable news, but other people would say, you know, on billboards, TV advertisements. So it's very important, I think, that we talk about propaganda and teach each other how to recognize it. Because, you know, we talk about education as really foundational to the survival of democracy, that we have to be educated and informed. But from our perspective, that means not just about issues and history and facts, but also about propaganda, how it works, how it influences us, and especially how um, we're all vulnerable to the kind of sub-rational appeals that propagandists make. When uh, Dave brought up the lizard brain and our primal fear center, um, it's called the amygdala. And when that is activated, in fact, uh, there's a 
social psychologist and science journalist, um, Ian Goldman, and he writes about emotional intelligence. And he describes this phenomenon of amygdala hijack, which is essentially a situation where if we're hit on that level of fear and rage, our ability to think critically gets impaired. A good example of this is like road rage. Right? Sure. Um, I'm going to out Dave as a road rager sometimes. What? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we, we talk to people about that and try to um, break down this idea that you can only talk about propaganda when you're in college or something. You know, we need to have more conversations just on the street. And, you know, if we're sitting around with um, our family, you know, and it's like Sunday dinner or, you know, during the football game and one of the uh, political attack ads comes on, how do you have how do you use that as an opportunity? to have a conversation about, you know, why somebody would put money in, into an ad like that, how that targets us. There's been a huge focus on, for, for instance, teaching civics since 2016, right? They're suddenly like, wow, what's happening? Folks don't know, you know, and what it means to be a, a, a to, to fulfill your duty as a citizen in the United States. We need, and like Aaron's saying, what we need is a, a, a civics, yes, but also a focus on media literacy. And if we're not going to suddenly have schools across the nation adopting media literacy programs, we need to be able to have those kinds of conversations with our friends and family that help people see through media to see how often it, it's not about informing us in, uh, in good faith, it's about pushing our buttons. The other piece that I think is really important in that definition of propaganda, encouraging a particular perception. You know, we had talked that one of the upcoming events that uh, the Gene and the Library will be hosting is a conversation about immigration. And when you think about how our perceptions are shaped around um, crime. You know, people think that crime is higher now, violent crime, and it's lower than it's been in years. So the media can really, really skew our perception of reality and of what's happening. And this is particularly dangerous around um, immigration and our perception of who immigrants are. And especially um, when we have a president that aggressively tries to use that kind of othering language to, to incite fear and suspicion of immigrants. And so we have been learning sort of uh, trial by fire about what are the most effective ways to communicate with people who might be resistant to the insight or the idea that you want to impart. And so one of the techniques that we've developed and then sort of research more and the, um, the evidence backs this up is that beating someone over the head with your point of view isn't effective, <laughs> as I'm sure uh, listeners um, have found out. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but um, if you can sort of take an end around somebody's resistance and use the power of narrative, you know, we all live by narrative, we think and learn through stories. And so what we focus on in our trainings is how, how do we tell a story about the way that media can influence our perception and then relate that back to immigration. So um, the way that we've come up with this is actually uh, pretty fun. It's worked pretty well. Right. So Aaron's talking about the, the power of narrative, right? So it, it, this is something that is uh, talked about quite a bit in organizing uh, circles, right? You just can't walk up to somebody's door and talk about healthcare or whatever with charts and graphs and statistics, people are much more interested and they will, t they will listen to you and hear you and remember what you're saying if you tell them a story, especially an emotional story. The problem with that is propagandists understand that, right? And they want to manipulate the dialogue. Or they want to manipulate um, people's thinking with, with hot button issues, with fear and with rage, like we were saying, like hit, hit people in the lizard brain. What we found is that, uh, yes, scary stories are effective in warping people's thinking and making them think that there's much more danger in crime or immigrants or healthcare or whatever than there actually is. But you can also use the power narrative to reconnect people with their critical thinking, with their higher mind, like we were talking about. And a good way to do that, so if somebody's all hyped up on immigration and they're, well, you know, we gotta build the wall and close the borders because immigrants are so, so dangerous and scary. Right. And well, who know, where would they be hearing that? Right. Uh, but so, so people get all hyped up on that sort of demagoguery. So how do you talk about it? Because, you know, uh, 
like Aaron was saying, so often if you just say, well, you're wrong, right? Here's the facts, here's the stats. People uh, not only don't, aren't moved by that, they'll tend to entrench. You know, it becomes like a yes it is, no it isn't a dynamic. But like Aaron's talking about this end around, you want to tell a story that can sort of blindside somebody so they're not expecting uh, the insight that you're going to deliver. When you tell somebody an un a story that they're not expecting to hear and that it doesn't seem to necessarily directly relate to the, uh, to their, to the issue that, at, at hand, they're forced to listen because they're trying to figure out where you're coming from with this. And if you can tell the story in an entertaining way, and then like Aaron said, at the end, connect it back to the issue, even if they're resistant, they're going to be forced to have an insight with you, right? They're going to come along with your insight. Even if they want to resist that insight, it's almost too late. You've sort of delivered it by stealth. So let me ask you, Kevin, have you been to the beach this year? Uh, for the sake of argument, yes. You <laughs> No, I no, no, So how many? So by, according, no, no, I haven't. According actually. to the census uh, information from 2010, how many people, I think it's over 58 million people, went to the beach in, in 2010. Over 58 million Americans went to the beach in 2010. Uh, Aaron, how many of those people were devoured by sharks? We should let people guess. You know, I see this, the shark attacks in the news all the time. I'd say it's pretty high. <laughs> A lot. It's actually just one. What? Just one. But, but what's our level of fear around this? You're, 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 you're a guy of a certain age, just like me, right? You saw Jaws in 1975. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How, did, how did that impact you? I was traumatized. Traumatized. Abs yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've actually never even seen the whole movie, and I'm still scared. I was afraid, just the sounds, right? Just the music. But I, I was afraid to swim in a swimming pool as a child, right? After I saw Jaws, I was horrified, terrified. It affects my fear level to this day. I'm 52 years old. When I go to the beach, I, it never... No, I still I swim, obviously, but there's never a time when I put my toe in the water that I don't think about sharks. That's the power of fear. That's the power of propaganda, because you can think about Jaws sort of as an anti-shark propaganda film. What did the movie Jaws do? It took a natural creature. Now, people are used to going to a horror movie and being scared about you know, werewolves and vampires and ghosts. But at the, when the credits roll at the end of the movie, you, know, you suspend disbelief, right? You go in and you surrender your critical thinking so you can enjoy this fantastical story and enjoy the ride. And then the credits roll and you say, oh, well, I know at the end of the day that vampires don't exist, but it was fun to be scared. What Jaws did is it took a natural creature and made that the movie monster and made that shark do things that sharks in real life would never ever do. They, for instance, what Aaron, they don't, you know, seek, seek <laughs> Yeah, they don't recognize individual humans or <laughs> seek revenge. But right. um, what's so interesting, you know, as Dave was saying, Jaws wasn't billed as like a documentary. It was obviously a, f a fictional horror movie. And usually when the credits roll, we leave that fear in the theater. But with Jaws, because it evokes such a primal fear, people took that with them and then acted on it in the real world. And so oceanographers were um, really alarmed to see shark populations plummeting. Some species drop by 50%, some as much as 90%. And they eventually traced it back to Jaws and the people, Jaws effect. The Jaws effect and the, the vindication that people felt because they were so scared in the movie to go out and then hunt and kill these sharks. Because after all, if it's a if there's a monster loose in your community and it's going to, you know, hurt and kill your family, uh, you are absolutely justified in killing that evil creature. Right? That, and that's what Jaws trigger, triggered in people, even though, like Aaron said, it wasn't a documentary, it was a fictional movie. It influenced people's attitudes and behaviors in the real world because it was so effective, like we talked about, like we're still scared of the ocean, right? Because it was so effective at triggering people's primal fear. So to bring this back to immigration, and you see this in the narratives that are out there, the propagandist narratives. All right, I'm going to frame it like that. 
immigrants are coming here. They are lawless. They're illegal. They're going to rape the women. They're going to kill you, stab you. That's our fear. Fear of the outside. The primal fear of the outsider, the boogeyman. The other. And also, also, very importantly, having a threat amplified out of all proportion to reality. Going back to Jaws and sharks, we've established that sharks are not nearly as dangerous as we've been conditioned through the media to fear that they are. You're much more likely to get mowed down by like a cow or a horse, right? But you don't get that sense of foreboding when you, you know, drive by a pasture. And so in the same way, it's not only the narratives of, you know, specifically demonizing um, immigrants, it's cherry picking one or two tragedies to amplify the threat out of all proportion to reality. Because to complete the, the, the circuit, who do you think actually commits crimes at higher rates? Native-born U.S. citizens or immigrants? Hmm. What's just sort of your gut reaction based on this, this what you a, see? That's a trick question. <laughs> I, see, I see where you're going with this. And I, okay, so the logic, is, I'm starting to get the logic here, right? Yeah, I, so I assume, but that's not what I see in the media, but I assume, because I'm thinking through this, that it's native-born people, right? We commit crimes at a higher rate, but that's not, the narrative that we're getting, right? Exactly. Just like Jaws. Just like Jaws. Told people that they should be terrified of sharks. And it created a fear that was way, 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 way out of proportion to the actual threat. And beyond that, beyond that, not only is it, did it create an, uh, uh, an outsized irrational fear and response from people, it did serious ecological damage. Killing sharks, on, uh, the, the, you know, eradicating sharks over a fantasy notion of how dangerous they are actually puts our ecosystem at risk, actually causes uh, the reduction of fish populations that we need to survive. So not only are we acting out and hurting sharks for no good reason, we're harming ourselves. We're harming our own environment by allowing fear to shut down our critical thinking. But let me ask you this. Is it not rational to, to think there are sharks in the water? I could get eaten by a shark. It's possible. There are illegals here we have no control of. It's possible I could get harmed by one of those people. Is it not rational to say, there's a lot of bad guys. I'm going to pack me a gun just in case. Is that not rational? It's, um, it's understandable, but no, it's not necessarily rational. Um, you know, yes, it's possible um, that you could get bitten by a shark, but it's much more likely that you'll be uh, attacked or killed by, you know, a white male or a domestic terrorist if you match up. The- do, do, you have the, do you have those numbers there? I do, what, yeah. How many people were killed by sharks in the, in the two years? How oh, much, um, over an eight-year period. Over eight years. Mm-hmm. How many? Eight, so one a year. One a year. Mm-hmm. How many people were killed by bees? Um, by bees, uh, over 500. How about cows? Um, 650. So, oh it, so, so it's, you're much more likely to be killed by a cow than a shark. But people's fear of sharks is so out, is so beyond out of proportion because I guess a, a movie called Moo isn't particularly scary, right? And and with immigrants, I just want to share a couple uh, statistics here to reinforce what I was saying. Um, the presence of large number of immigrants seems to lower crime rates. Um, undocumented, even undocumented immigrants, not immigrants with legal status are 44% less likely to be incarcerated than native-born citizens. Legal immigrants are 69% less likely to be incarcerated than natives. There are lots of studies, lots of studies, that show that um, U.S.-born citizens commit crimes at higher rates, and also um, the presence of large immigrant communities tends to lower 
crime rates. But that's not the narrative that you hear at all from the president. That's not the narrative that you hear in the news. And of course, this goes back to kind of the bias of, of news in general, that on the news, they report uh, plane crashes, not plane landings. So they're already reporting things that are extraordinary. But there are just as many stories of immigrant acts of heroism. Uh, there was a a man here. Um, so um, Antonio Diaz Chacon saved a six-year-old girl who was abducted in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There are countless stories of immigrant acts of heroism that we don't hear in the media. Most famously recently was the, the guy in France, right, who scaled the balcony, uh, scaled the side of a building, you know, pulling himself up, up by the balcony uh, to, say, to rescue that child who's uh, uh, going to fall, who was dangling over the, uh, over the edge. Why do we gravitate towards the negative, the the cataclysmic, uh, as opposed to the feel-good, the positive stories. Is that just human nature? And should this be one of the flags that gets raised? Like if, if we're taking in a message, something that we see in television or propaganda, if we will, if it's scary, if it's dark, negative, you, we all know those political commercials, right? There's that guy with the gravelly voice. And then it's the, all the pictures are in black and white and they're not good looking. I mean, should that be a flag right away that, hey, we're trying to, someone's trying to manipulate us here? Exactly. That goes back to what we said about, you know, so, so much of our focus in talking to our friends and family has to be giving little lessons, little media literacy lessons about how to notice those flags when somebody's trying to manipulate you emotionally, right? And it's not just, it's not just propaganda about hate and fear. It's commercial propaganda. Like Aaron was saying, the kids, uh, you know, the young folks that we talk to recognize that, obviously, advertising wants to manipulate us emotionally. They're not interested in, for in informing you in a balanced, uh, rational way about the product. They want to figure out how to get at your emotions to uh, relieve you of your money. In general, we need to be doing a much better job of having, of having people... Uh, have those media literacy aha insights, like you're saying, seeing those flags. And to go back to what you said, Kevin, about is it human nature? Yes, it is human nature. It's our most primal, fundamental human nature. Like Aaron talked about the amygdala, the fear center. You know, we live in civilization and we have, you know, iPhones and stuff, but we're still animals, right? For most of our, the millions of years of our existence, we're just, you know, uh, clawing to survive. And if, you, if, you're, uh, if our ancestors uh, disregarded the rustling in the leaves, right, it might have been the wind, but it might be a snake. So we are wired to respond and seek threats. But that's not the full story. We also have a higher capacity that has evolved, which is why we uh, have created civilization, which is why we can think rationally and coolly and calmly and have, demo have a democracy if we can keep it, <laughs> right? If we can maintain our higher brain, if we can uh, not allow our higher mind rational faculties to be overwhelmed by fear and unreason. That's the struggle that we're in. So we have propaganda. We have emotionality. We have irrationality. All three of these things are working together. So around the Thanksgiving table, right, when people are raising these issues, yeah, these immigrants, I saw it on Fox News or I saw it on CBS or whatever. You know, when they put out this propaganda, they're regurgitating this propaganda and they're talking, they're, they're underscoring the, these negative narratives. Okay, let's cut to it. What do we say? You're wrong. Mm -hmm. Do we say, no, uh, let me give you a positive narrative, buddy. How do we address this with somebody who has bought into, who is passing on this? Well, I think Aaron has uh, uh, a lot to say about that. But I want to intro it by saying 
first of all, in those situations, and those are the ones that people always imagine, like the worst case scenario, you're around the table, you know that your, your brother-in-law is a jerk and he's going to you know, start parroting this stuff and then you're going to have to deal with him over the mashed potatoes and it's going to be horrible, right? It's going to be a food fight. So first of all, manage your expectations. Right. So, so, so much of what we're saying about, you know, let's tell, let's tell a narrative that, you know, sort of comes in, but, you know, sort of by stealth. Don't expect that your brother-in-law is going to suddenly, you know, have a conversion moment. Right. right? That's I see why, the light on this. He's right. Oh, I, you've totally <laughs> changed me, you know, in five minutes, you know, over, over dinner. That's, that's prob- probably not going to happen. That's why we're talking about developing these strategies that help people have insights that they cannot help but have along with you. Because it, that matters. That's, it might not matter in that moment, but it will matter over time. And, it, and sometimes, in some cases in life, you're doing the best that you can do with the situation that you're dealt, right? So, you, uh, so the main thing is having the conversation, even if it's a fight, right? Because we're all just trying to figure this out. There's, there's sort of this, um, this idea with like, you know, so much of this let's talk across the divide stuff going on, which is really important. It, but it sets up this expectation that there is some secret magic formula for having these conversations where you can persuade, you know, the, the anti-immigration guy to suddenly you know, think just like you think. That's, that's unrealistic. Right. But what we can do is have the kind of conversations that are most likely to, to be effective over the long term and get people to think about the issue in a different way. Okay. Right? So if I could enumerate this. So number one, let's take on this conversation, right? If it's uncomfortable, let's embrace that. Let's go there. Can't get any worse, right? Maybe, right? No, that's right. You have to, you have, to have the conversation. There's, there's something uh, called the loudest voice in the room effect. What's What's that? Absolutely. So that is a phenomenon that social scientists have documented that shows that if there's one, you know, loudmouth or racist or bigot or whoever climate change denier and they're spouting off and they're at a table with, you know, five other people who disagree but don't say anything, an outsider looking in on that situation will think that majority opinion is that of the loudmouth or the bigot or the climate change denier. So that's really the the situation we've gotten ourselves into, I think, out of a fear of being seen as uncivil. You know, it's and that's the point I I really want to make here is that um, civil does not mean appeasement. You can be civil with someone and you can have a conversation that challenges your ideas and their ideas. And that's really where we need to get to. I think it's very important to cultivate an ability in ourselves to kind of stay calm enough so that we can ask questions and listen. But you're not listening for the sake of politeness. You're not listening for the sake of appeasing someone's racist or conspiratorial beliefs. You're creating that kind of an environment where you and the other person can hear yourselves think. So that's really, really important. So is this number two? Let's have an expectation here that we're coming from different sides, that we may not agree on this, but let's at least have a conversation on this. Can we agree on this, right? Maybe set, set some rules. Or this. yes, or just um, let's, let's investigate this. Let's think through this together. Let's think through this. Okay. Okay. What's number three? Fundamentally, what we're, what we're working to do in these conversations is um, induce reflection and dampen the kind of reactivity that we know can be there, the defensiveness, the impulse to defend your partisan tribe or your ideological camp. So how do we induce reflection? What, what do you think would be a good way to do that? What mode of conversation helps get people in a reflective frame of mind? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm stuck on the language here. Uh, okay, I'm thinking like most basic terms. Like, okay, so we're having this com- uncomfortable conversation around immigration. And... So we say, okay, well, let's talk about it. All right. And then someone starts yelling at you. I, I, what I would say is um, if somebody starts yelling at you, um, wow, it seems like, it, you know, seems like you're really upset. What's going on? So when we, say, when we say reflection, 
I think in, in that moment in the conversation, you kind of want to throw on the brakes and sort of hold up a mirror so that someone can see how they're reacting. That's what we mean by reflection, um, inducing that sort of self-reflection. So somebody is like, why am I flipping out right now? <laughs> just simply asking. So the, what we're getting at before is just the, the uh, good old fashioned Socratic method, right? So. Mm -hmm. The immediate impulse can often be just to like, you know, push back, you know, throw your talking point, you know, and sort of get in that heated, you know, back and forth. Or to try to calm that person down and sort of, you know, let them dominate the conversation. Right. So if someone so, says, oh, yeah, these, these immigrants are coming in here and they're, they're killing people. So you say, so you say what? I hear what you're saying. Uh, I'm sure that is in some cases that exists. Right? right. Is that where you're going with this, how you go with this? or Somebody's absolutely suddenly going off the rails and they're angry. A, a simple Socratic way to, like, of holding up the, the mirror, like Aaron said, would be say, why, why are you so angry? The main thing is to be in the conversation to try and figure it out within your own temperament and who you are and how you approach these situations. But these are there's some strategies that we identified and that we, we, we uh, talk with folks about. But so if you're saying, why are you so angry? That's just, for an, that's just in the immediate moment to try and get somebody to see how they're behaving at the dinner table and to, to moderate their behavior. Oh, you know, because this is great. This is absolutely great. And I think this is super useful because we run on auto, emotional autopilot sometimes, right? And we don't get a chance often. And people don't say enough to us. Hey, you know, tell me about this. Why, why do you feel this way? You know, that's a gesture. That's an open palm gesture, right? And it's right. A, it's also, it's kind of like a pressure release valve. A pressure you know? release valve, yeah. So asking a question. Um, but the other thing, and actually Dave did this the other day, talking to a young woman who uh, was repeating a conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton. He was out registering voters. And um, he said, I don't blame you for having heard that. So in that situation, you could say something like, well, I don't blame you for being angry. But what concerns me is, and then you can um, share your perspective about, you know, what concerns me is that, you know, I just heard this really good story of an immigrant who risked his life to save someone else. Why don't we ever hear about that in the media? It seems, you know, my concern is that we seem to be getting a really skewed perception about who immigrants are and what, what the real threats are. You know, let's have see, a conversation about Some of these stories that. are really dramatic. Yeah. Like we're saying, people live by narratives and all they're hearing is the negative narrative. So if you can get your brother-in-law to see himself for a moment and calm down and you're able to not just to him, right? It's, there's often an audience. So you might tell, you might realize, my brother-in-law is probably not reachable on this. But if I can get, if I can at least moderate his anger, right, and be able to, to uh, tell my side of the story or tell the these immigrants' side of the story, it's going to affect other people. And that's where that loudest voice in the room thing comes in. So uh, for years, we've let this stuff proliferate until Donald Trump was president, right? In every conversation, we all just sort of step back because, well, Uncle. You know, Uncle Joe's, you know, he's, he sounds a little unhinged. Just let him go, right? Because he really feels strongly about this, and we just want to get to the pumpkin pie. But we have to be able to challenge this stuff. So, right? I, so yeah, so after recognizing where someone's coming from, I hear what you're saying. I understand you're angry. But let me share something different. Let me share an alternative narrative. And is this number four that... Then you bring in something that sort of challenges you can, a, a counter narrative. And you can have it with, you know, have these, you know, have this, if you know that you're going into a situation where the same crap comes up over and over again, you know, prepare. You know, you can have, like Aaron has these, you know, has this uh, paper right in front of her right now mm -hmm. uh, from the, was that from the Boston Boston Globe. Globe. This is, uh, talks about William Ramirez, who's a father of two from Columbia. He was on his way to his maintenance job at a boatyard when he saw a man trying to gun down a Miami police officer. Uh, Ramirez drove his van into the line of fire, shielding the policeman from the shooter and pulling him to safety. I mean, there's some dramatic, dramatic stories, right? And, and that doesn't mean that an immigrant never kills somebody, right? But if, if all people are hearing is the negative, and people have a basic sense of fairness, I'm not saying that it never happens. Just like native-born people kill people, right? You know, you might 
find a story, I'm sure, that's true about a member, immigrant who murdered somebody, but it's only fair that we hear these stories as well. Yeah. And at, the very, at the very least, people are going to be, just out of a basic sense of fairness, if it's not your brother-in-law, the other people at the table are going to be interested to hear that. That's a great point. I guess, I don't know, is this a Christian thing uh, to recognize the humanity in other people, to know that, yeah, you know, look, I know you're in there somewhere. Uh, I know your morality is in there somewhere. I know your sense of decency is in there somewhere. I, I want to punch you in the face right now, but I know you're a, you're a decent person down deep, so let's continue the conversation. I'm just being facetious well, about this, but it's yeah. serious though, right? I mean, that's, especially if it's somebody you know, you want to think about and affirm the good. You know, I know you're somebody who cares about other people. I know you're somebody who wants to look out for people in the community. And um, what, what helps me is that Donald Trump is up there every day trying to divide us. So what helps me is, because I, I'm, you know, I can be kind of hot-blooded about this stuff, like Aaron said about the road rage thing. Uh, I can, you know, I can be passionate and emotional, but if I, what helps me keep it in check and stay connected to that higher mind and, and, and trying to have the, the, the rational conversation is realizing that if I give in to the rage and we just have a heated back and forth that's unproductive and, and, we, and that person just entrenches in their viewpoint and we're, at, we're all the more divided at the end of it, the propagandists, the demagogues have won because that's what their goal is. They want to divide us. In terms of, so what we're talking about with um, asking a question to sort of dampen that reactivity, to help the person calm down, help them articulate what their core fear or concern is so that you can talk about it, and then um, adding information by telling a story that they haven't heard and, and sort of um, showing that there is a big, bigger picture gets them um, doubting, well, why haven't I been told this information from my media sources? So what you're doing in those moments is shifting the salience, you know, altering that sort of top of mind, you know, through our immersion in certain media sources, like, for example, Fox News and talk radio, they're going to tell a lot of really negative fear mongering stories about immigrants. And so telling a good story about an act of heroism or about how immigrants actually lower crime rates in communities or about immigrants in your own family and probably in that person's family, too, a couple generations back, that shifts the salience and it helps people remember what they've forgotten, that part of themselves that is still in there. So we, we also talk about talking to the thinking citizen, right? That capacity for, um, you know, higher, higher moral reasoning and to have a conversation is in there, but it's dormant. You know, we've kind of let these muscles of having conversations and listening to each other and not just waiting for our turn to talk. You know, we've let those muscles atrophy and we have to actively rebuild them. So it really does take practice, training yourself to keep your cool because we all feel passionately about these issues, and then seeking out opportunities to talk to people where it is a back and forth dialogue where ideas are being challenged and where you're planting a seed that will shift someone's thinking over the long term. As Dave said, managing your own expectations. You know, it's very important to get in there into the arena and have these conversations, but especially around these really, um, you know, uh, deep, effective, inflammatory cultural wedge issues, you're not going to have like a doorstep conversion where all of a sudden somebody says, yes, I'm a huge immigration supporter. But if they can think I was really reacting um, out of proportion to the threat, you know, if they go back and think about immigrants and their family, you know, that's going to that's going to create those shifts that we need to bring people a little closer together. It, it, to, go, to make that point on health care, how often it happens that somebody's dead set against Obamacare, or, you know, because it's going to kill, you know, people and it's terrible and it's tyrannical and then I'll tell a specific story so here's how the Affordable Care Act helped this specific individual who uh, works hard you know and uh, hadn't seen a doctor in 20 years and they finally they were able to go and they found a condition that saved their lives and that person will say oh well it's okay for them <laughs> right so that's completely contradictory they want to they, they hate the entire law but then when confronted with that individual story 
that, that true story of how the law helped somebody that they consider worthy, right? They suddenly do a little carve out. So is that a whole you know, life conversion for them on the, uh, on the subject of healthcare reform? No, but you have to take it as sort of a victory because you've made them think about it in a different way. But do we say at the end of the day, oh, let's just agree to disagree. Is that where we end up? Because that's easy, right? It's easy to say, well, you have your opinion, I have mine, and let's just walk away from this. I don't think you ever do that when you know that someone's beliefs are motivated in part by uh, some kind of a manipulation or conspiracy. I think that kind of approach has got us to where we are today. I mean, I, I think that, you know, you could, obviously people are going to have philosophical differences about like the role of government and things like that. But if you're talking to someone on immigration and they, you know, their views on that are anchored to a conspiracy or an intentional manipulation, I think that's dangerous to, I think that comes a little bit too close to appeasing to just say, we'll we'll just agree to disagree. I think you'd want to try to keep those channels of communication open and work on that person. That's why we opened by saying civil conversations are extremely important and we want to have, you know, civility in the culture, but there really is a toxic phenomenon happening in the country that a lot of people have been uh, influenced by. And we really, we have to, you know, meet people where they are we, but we can't leave them there. Oh, I like that. More reflection, less reaction. So this is the Uncomfortable Conversations Speaker Series Podcast. That's the official name. Oh, that's a big mouthful. We just call it the Uncomfortable Conversations Podcast for short. If you like what you've heard, be sure to comment, rate, like, review us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time with another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations Podcast. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.